right, well, we continue on in Ephesians. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, and it has six chapters, and it's split really right in uh, two. The first three chapters are um, full of doctrine. The last three chapters, chapters four through six, which we'll start tonight, are more about application. In other words, uh, the first three chapters are about uh, indicatives, things that God has done and says about us that we we can't change. He gets to say and do um, whatever he wants, and we get to receive, and it's beautiful. So we talked about things like um, the spiritual blessings. In chapter 1, it talked about how every spiritual blessing comes through Christ, that we have everything we need in him and more. It talked in chapter 2 about um, that we are saved by grace, that we are uh, adopted into the family of God, that we um, are the children of God. Chapter 3 talks about that as well, um, that we have uh, so much in Christ. And so we celebrated all of that in the first three chapters, and those were just things to um, listen and, and receive and absorb and meditate and immerse ourselves in. And now we start chapter four, and there's a real clear break between those uh, chapters. And now we're talking about imperatives. So the indicatives say, this is what God has done for you. The imperatives, chapter four, five, and six, are all about how we live. So since God has done these things and said these things about you, given you your identity, that's what this whole series is about, finding our identity in Christ, here's how you live. And he's connecting the dots. And so in chapter 4, the first 16 verses are one passage. And most uh, would probably teach that as one simple sermon. Um, But I'm going to split it in two. um, Because I think it's really important for us to see uh, something specific. In verses uh, 1 through 6, it talks about our calling. That's the theme for tonight. And verses 7 through 16 are all about um, our gifting. And what I want to really be specific about is that verses 1 through 6 are talking about us being. Verses 7 through 16 are talking about us doing. And in Scripture, being always comes before doing. Now, let me ask you when it comes to calling. We all have a calling, right? Um, We probably have a lot of callings. Anything that God tells us to do is a calling. You hear that word in church circles all the time. Are you called? You called? You called? You called? You called? If I just ask you, what is your calling? What would you say? You don't have to be super spiritual. This isn't Sunday school, so you don't have to just say Jesus on all of it. But what, what are you called to? When you think about your life, what comes to mind? Anything? Called a witness, for sure. So called to do something? Volunteer. Volunteer? Yeah, called to do that. Good. Any, anyone else? Care for elderly parents. Yeah, for you, for sure. Yeah, for all of us. We're, cared, we're called to uh, take care of our elders and, and um, specifically our family members. Good. Anybody else want to throw anything out there? Your job? For sure. For sure. Um, If we open this up even more to 10, 100, 1,000 more answers, you'd probably see a similar theme. We just had four answers, and all of them revolved around doing. Doing. And when you talk about calling, most people think about, um, I'm called to go somewhere. You see that a lot in scripture. God sends us. I'm called to go somewhere. I'm called to do something. And these are wonderful callings. And, and there's so many things that fit into that box. Um, 
But this is the beauty. This is the beauty. Religion ends there. That's all it has to offer you. Religion by itself is do something, go somewhere. It's all about your effort. But God says, I'm inviting you to a deeper calling. A a calling of being. I, I want you to make an impact out there, but I want to first make an impact in here. And the kingdom of God starts in our heart. And verses 1 through 6 are all about being. Being with Jesus. Being transformed by Jesus. That's a beautiful calling. Um, I don't know about you. Some of, some of you probably got like hobbies. I, I don't have many hobbies. Um, most of them I would talk openly about because it's like sports, like watching K-State football or something like that. Um, I don't know. Sometimes you have like just that one or two things that you'll geek out over that you're like, man, I would really love to talk to someone about this, but I think they might make fun of me. Do you have anything like that in your life? No, Dustin Keysweater says, no, I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I, I got one, and I've mentioned it. If, if you've been around me any length of time, um, you've probably heard about it. But years ago, Tara and I, when we moved from Salina, we got married here in Salina, moved to Virginia, and we were 22 hours from home, so we didn't come home a lot obviously. And, um, we, we had to figure out what are we going to do, right? We, we want to do something and we didn't have kids. And so, um, we decided to just go on some adventures and we started to hike and we, um, and then I started to kind of geek out over the idea of adventures and I'll be, this is really geeky. Do you remember, remember that movie up? Any of you watch that little Pixar movie up? And there was like the little old couple and, um, Mark didn't want them die or something at the beginning. And like, they, they, <laughs> this is very romantic. And they were sitting there and, um, in their living room, and they had a book, and it just said, like, adventure book. And we watched that one night in the midst of us going on these adventures, and I said, you know what? It would be cool to look back at the end of life, because even though it was a kid's movie, a little bit of a tearjerker, right? And, and, and say, what did, we, what did we do? Not like a, you know, Sears family portrait kind of thing, but like do us doing these adventures together. And so we started taking pictures of some of these hikes and putting them in a book. And so before you know it, we, we made it into something bigger. And we said, let's go hike in like every state, right? So um, let's just go everywhere. We ain't got nothing else to do right now. And, and so we started going to different states. And um, that was eight years ago. And, and all these books right here are filled with pictures of hiking. Um, like, like a ton of hiking. I counted it up one time just for fun. And it was like, um, over 150 hikes in like 35 states, um, over 300 miles that we had hiked together. And, and so it was before Silas. I mean, we're just, we're everywhere. It's just, this is me back when I had, um, uh, hair and that's a long time ago. And we just, we just went everywhere and we filled up all these books and you, Here's what I'm getting at. When we made most of these books, and they go back, you know, again, seven, eight, nine years ago, I was concerned mostly with where we were going and what we were doing. I was like, oh man, this is going to be cool to remember this. Oh, that was such a beautiful thing. We're on the beach. But when I and Tara pick up one of these books now and look back at the beginning of our marriage, and we look at those early pictures, we rarely talk about the scenery. We rarely talk about the state that we were in or what we were doing. You know what we talk about? We see old pictures of ourselves and we say, who were we? Who were we? And we talk about, man, look what I looked like. And look, remember how we used to act? And we we reminisce on, 
everything in here, even though in the moment we were taking pictures about everything out there. And I think the older you get, the more you realize you don't want to get to the end of life and realize you went a bunch of places and you did a bunch of things, but you were rotten inside. Like you want to know that you're maturing and growing and bringing God glory by being transformed by him. And the only way that's going to happen is if you're with him and you're in his presence and you're making it a priority and you're being changed by the grace of God. And that's in the heart of every one of us, but thank God it's in the heart of God. Because he's saying, I don't want you to get to the end of all this and say you missed out on what was really important. Who you were with and how you were changed. Man, every part of these pictures, every beautiful scene that we saw in every one of these places, it's all going to fade away. But bringing God glory by being transformed day in and day out with that relationship with Jesus is going to echo in eternity. So we're going to walk through tonight um, just these six verses, and we're going to talk about what it means to be called. Uh, when it comes to our identity, our calling is tied very closely to it. You see... Um, who we are ultimately will dictate what we do, and the world flips this. And so if you grow up in the culture, and all of us do, you will notice um, that as we walk through this tonight and we talk a little bit about calling, your, your view on calling might be twisted because the world says what you do defines who you are, but Jesus says what I've done for you defines who you are. And so we have to know um, that when we find our identity in him, and who he says we are and what he's done for us, then it changes um, what we do. And so what we do always comes out of who we are. Our calling, before going and doing, our calling is Christ, to be with him. So let's walk through this. It's going to be good. I am called, is what we're talking about. Verse 1 through 6. If you've got a Bible, we are usually preaching out of the ESV, uh, although I usually reference a few other uh, translations, but that's where we're at. Verse 1 says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. So this is Paul. He's the pastor. He's in jail. Good way to start. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So this word walk, this is a theme in Ephesians. Several themes in Christ. You hear that over and over and over and over roughly 40 times throughout these six chapters. And now in chapter 3, this is the application. And so he says, walk. And it sets the tone for everything. So how do you walk in Christ? In a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There's calling, calling. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right, let's jump in. We're going to stop three times. We're going to talk about what it means to walk in Christ. Verse 1, let's go back and pick it apart a little bit. Paul said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. First thing we see is walking with Jesus. So let's talk about 
what it means to walk with Jesus. How's your walk with Jesus? People ask that on a regular basis in the church world, and we say, well, it's pretty good, and we reference different parts of our relationship with God, but what does it really mean to walk with Jesus? The word worthy in Greek is axios. That's where we get axis, and it means um, fitting or balanced. In other words, um, does the way that you live fit what you say you believe? Um, Does your belief and your behavior balance? How often do people say, I don't want anything to do with God. Why? Because Christians. Why? Because, well, Christians are hypocrites. Why? Because they say they believe one thing and do another. We hear that all the time. And you don't need to hear it from the world. You hear from the Bible. The Bible saying, make sure that what you say you believe and the way that you actually live match up. Match up. He says that you walk in a manner worthy. Not that you could earn it, right? But that they simply fit of the calling to which you have been called. So what is this calling, right? What, what is this calling that he's referring to? Well, obviously he's talking about salvation, But this ultimate calling, there's primary callings or secondary callings in your life. This is a primary calling. It is to be in a personal, repentant, obedient, grace-filled relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a primary calling. That is for all of humanity. And Paul's specifically talking to the church here, saying, you guys have it. Remember the calling. You you were called to follow me. Jesus said, follow me. And, And when you place your faith in him, we call this getting saved, being forgiven of our sins. Um, we're not only with Jesus, so we are being with Jesus, but we reflect him. We reflect his glory. So that's a, that's a primary calling for your life, that you would be with Jesus and that you'd reflect his glory. Now, let me, let me differentiate just a little bit, because we talk about being in the presence of God. You, ne- you need to know, theologically, you are either in the presence of God or you are out of the presence of God, in the sense that um, the Spirit of God either lives in you or does not. There's no in-between. And so if you're a Christian, you might feel distant from God at times, but you can't technically be any more distant from God. Like you, He's in you. You're sealed with the Spirit. That can't change. Even when you screw up, even when you make mistakes, that doesn't change. That's really, really, really good news. This is why God says, I've given you uh, something to seal your salvation so that you know that's the Holy Spirit inside of you. And so, when we talk about being called, talk about being with God, reflecting, being transformed by God, reflecting his glory. Um, Leviticus 19 in the Old Testament, um, when uh, Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments and a whole bunch of other stuff from God, God says something um, very specific that sets the tone for really all of the Bible. And he says, be holy as I am holy. Some of us, we get used to in evangelical circles saying, well, I can't be holy. I shouldn't even try. That's not my job. God says, be holy. In Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to get to it in a few weeks. Verse 1, he says, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Be holy as I am holy. How's your life? Is it holy? Would you describe your life as holy? Is it righteous? It's easy to say, well, Jesus is righteous, he's holy, I'm not. 
Well, if you spend time around him, though, you're going to be changed. You see, <clears throat> I think we've got to ask ourselves questions on a regular basis. Um, not to make us feel shamed or guilty, but we've got to ask ourselves, you know, if, if someone sees my life without even hearing me speak, but they see the way that I live, does it say, does my lifestyle, do my actions say that I follow Jesus? There is such a huge disconnect in the church between claiming to have a relationship with Jesus and living completely in an unrighteous way. And I often find, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's almost like you wonder if they're even taught <laughs> that like we're going we're gonna to walk in righteousness. Sometimes I feel like it's an afterthought. I think sometimes as evangelicals, we say, hey, receive forgiveness. Jesus wants to forgive you. Um, he died for your sin. And we talk about all this and it sounds good, good, good. And there, there's nothing else. And so Christians grow up in the evangelical church thinking like, okay, I received Jesus. Now what? It's like, he tells us also, repent, obey me. And when you spend time around Jesus, you're going to be changed. You see, you're going to find that you have a, 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 a disgust for sin more and more and more in your life. If you can come and hear sermons, if you can read God's word, and you don't find yourself disgusted at your own sin and a growing disgust, something, something's wrong. And you can't say, well, I understand grace and the love of God without a disgust for your sin because they go hand in hand. I mean, that's like, that's like watching someone you love get beat up and say, I love them, and I'm cool with hanging out with them. It's like, they're getting beat up. Stop it. And, and sin is, is everything in opposition to God. So if you look at your life and you say, eh, I just wonder why things aren't changing. Do you, do you hate sin? Do you hate sin? So this, <clears throat> this creeps into our culture, like in the church, in ways that we don't even realize. It. This past week, um, Really, in the last couple of days, there's been a bunch of articles about a pastor uh, in Tennessee, um, large church pastor who 20 years ago uh, sexually abused a girl in the church. And of course, anytime something like this happens, the media loves to get a hold of it and say that everyone's just like this, right? Um, but it's a heartbreaking thing. And um, the gal who was abused um, came forward and made it public, you know. And uh, so then, long story short, this guy, this pastor, had to stand up in front of thousands of people this past week, and he, he read um, basically a description of what happened and um, apologized and whatnot. He said the right things as much as you can, right? He said, this was 20 years ago, and, and I still have sorrow, and I want healing for her, and um, blah, blah, blah. And then they prayed over him, and the pastors of the church, they said the right things as much as you can, right? Um, and, and my heart felt for all of them. Church leaders, um, him, certainly her. But through all of it, there was one little detail that just like kind of overwhelmed me and made me sick. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm sickened by the whole thing. When he read the confession of his sins to the congregation, I was watching the, the video the congregation stood up, clapped, and gave him a standing ovation. 
Now, what they were ultimately doing, I think, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, they were applauding his honesty. But in that moment, I was just like, what's happening? And I don't care if it's, if it's a sin from Pastor Andy or me or anyone in between. It doesn't matter if it's Crosspoint or any other church. Like, how did we get to a place where someone in, in leadership stands up and says, I'm going to confess my sin and we stand up and applaud them? That's a culture that values transparency over holiness. Authenticity over righteousness. Do we even follow Jesus? Jesus was not clapping. He died for that sin. That was a somber moment for that dude to confess. I admire, and I don't want to lose like the, the fact that there were some things done right in trying to repair and heal the situation. At least from what you can tell from the outside. But man, that's heartbreaking. Say, I'm not perfect. I know. I'm not either. But Jesus is. And if you spend time with Jesus, you will be changed. Over Christmas break, um, my brother has a little girl, Macy, and she's, she's like eight years old. And she lives in Kansas City and doesn't get to see Silas very uh, much. And on that side of the family, up until just a few months ago, that was his only cousin. And so he, he, um, we wanted him to see, see her more. And like <clears throat> my, my mom who lives, my parents who live halfway between here and Kansas City, said, let's, let's just drive and pick all the kids up. And even if it's like 36 hours, let's just have them come stay and hang out. And so they did that. And um, I'm sure they had a blast. They made all kinds of food and ate all kinds of food and stayed up late and did all things that, you know, when you do a little slumber party with your cousins, you do. Um, but they were only together for like 36, 40 hours. Like it was a quick trip. And we picked up Silas and took him home. We started to notice his mannerisms were different, like things that he didn't do 48 hours earlier. And he would do things like this, like he would put his hands on his hip and he'd say, mom, like, that's weird. We noticed a few other weird things. And I said, Silas, why are you doing that? He said, I don't know. Sarah and I looked at each other. What makes a four-year-old boy act like an eight-year-old girl? Quality time together. That's what... That's what does, right? They spent a little bit of time together and in 36 hours, he was acting like her. If that happens to a four-year-old, what's going to happen when you and I spend time in the presence of a holy God? To me, this might feel, it might sound shameful, but to me, there's such amazing hope in this. Because if you find your life is lacking and you feel broken and you feel defeated and you're like, I'm never going to move forward and make steps in maturity. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if, if you barely spend time with Jesus right now, if you don't really like devote yourself to seeking him and talking to him and listening to him and having a relationship with him, then how amazing is it going to be if you extend any effort at all? Like seriously, this is, ha- this is half my counsel to people. And this might sound bad, but I say, listen, do you spend much time with Jesus? Um, and then they'll say, no, I really don't. I'll say, good news. <laughs> you're not dead. You're still alive. And if you spend any time with him, you're going to be changed and things are going to go, they're, they're going to ultimately, you're going to grow. So let me, let me just ask you. How's your walk with Jesus? How's the holiness in your life? Is Jesus rubbing off on you at all? If he's not, you might not be as close to him as you think. And 
for us in this culture where it's busy, 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 I think we can go days and weeks and months of neglect with God because everything around us is screaming for our attention and God's patiently standing back saying, I'm here. I'm the only thing that's promised to not leave you, but I'm also not screaming as loud as everything else. And I recognize even, I sympathize with my wife because when she's with kids all day and the busyness and the craziness of it, you know, when you're a college kid and some pastor gets up and tells you about quiet time with Jesus, you're like, okay, this is all about discipline. Wait till you have kids. And then you realize there's nothing quiet ever. (laughs) So good luck with your quiet time. Chaos time. And you got to, you got to learn how to connect with Jesus, even in the chaos. There's people all over the world who don't get quiet times. Their lives don't allow it. It's many times not by choice. They don't have a choice. And in America, we've got time. Even the busiest of us make our own schedules. Holiness is not a try harder issue. It's a spend time with Jesus issue. Verses two and three. So if you spend time with Jesus, it's going to change how you live and how you act, how you behave. Verse two says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Second thing we see is walking with others. So you walk with Jesus, that's a primary calling, and you're going to walk with others, that's a primary calling. But you've got to be with Jesus in order to act right with others. <laughs> you can't, it will be temporary and very insufficient if you try to act right and get your behavior right with other people for any significant amount of time if you're not spending time with Jesus. It just, it just ain't going to happen. Like, even as a pastor, I got, I got to have some alone time. I got to be able to, to just focus. Sometimes, even on a Sunday morning, things will be busy. People will be moving. I'm an introvert, and so I can only handle like 2.5 conversations a, a day. And so, for me, like, sometimes I'll just go downstairs and find like a quiet room that no one's in and just like in the dark, just kind of just pray. And I'll be like, man, if they only knew that I was running away from them all right now, they'd probably think that. But I, like, I have to just talk to God a little bit without a million other people. But when you spend time with Jesus, the overflow of that is that you're going to be able to interact with each other the way he calls you to. So here's six things. Here's six fruits, I would call them, of intimacy with Jesus. These, these are things that are fruit of the Spirit. These are things that, that happen um, and we're called to do, but they only happen when we spend time with Jesus. Let's walk through them and see how you guys are doing. You guys like litmus tests? Um, we're going to do um, a little bit of that. We're going to walk through some of these things. It'll be fun. You'll feel wonderful about yourself when we're all done. So he says, with all humility, humility, this is the opposite of pride, right? Um, So back in the day, in the Greek culture, they looked at humility as a vice, something bad, something that was reserved only for slaves. To be humble was not a good thing, right? Um, But this is one of the few things in scripture that God specifically tells us to do to us. He doesn't say, you need to forgive yourself, even though forgiving yourself can be good. You, you, You need to do this. You need to do as much as he says when it comes to humility specifically. He says, humble yourself. Humble yourself. He mentions it all throughout scripture and it's usually in reference to you doing it to you. Humble yourself. One day we're all going to be humbled. Question is, are you going to let God do it? <laughs> or are you going to choose to do it because you see 
who God is. You see, humility, um, humility is simply an accurate view of yourself. Not too high, not too low. Recognizing you're not God, so your view of yourself isn't going to be what the world might say it should be. There's a lack of pride. But you're not nothing. You're created in the image of God. You have intrinsic value. You're different than animals. You're different than stuff. God breathed life into you. You have value because of God. It's an accurate view of yourself. It's been said about humility, uh, that humility is a grace that when you realize you have it, you lose it. You ever try to analyze yourself and say, I wonder, am I humble? You know what? I think I'm pretty humble. And guess what? You're not humble anymore. It changes. Humility is putting Jesus first, others second, and yourself third. Humility isn't just a um, feeling or an emotion. You literally, you gotta make sure, you gotta say, I'm going to have a disposition in my heart and in my behavior that I'm going to lift others up. Even if I'm in a position of authority over them, even if I'm called their leader, even if I'm their boss at work, I'm going to lower myself and lift them up. We won't hit on it, but if you want to know what this looks like in action, check out Philippians 2. Particularly verses 5 through 8. This is Jesus humbling himself to the point of death, death on a cross. Let me ask you, um, <clears throat> I could ask you some church-related stuff. Let me, let me skip that. Just ask you about your pride. Um, <clears throat> let's say you're unemployed. Would you work fast food? I mean, in our culture, God bless the fast food workers, but we don't look upon them as an amazing job. I think it's noble and it's honorable to work any job, right? It's not sinful. But would you work fast food? If you... um you weren't doing as well financially as you hoped, would you downsize? Would you live in a trailer? Would you go back to living in an apartment? These questions might sound funny, but these are, these are real questions. We perceive a trajectory. We, we believe that every American to have the American dream has a trajectory and lifestyle, and it doesn't feel like backtracking is good. But that's the American dream, not God's plan in many cases. Would you sell your car and ride the bus if you needed to? It doesn't matter what state I've been in. Benevolence calls seem to amaze me. And I don't want to lump everyone into the same thing, but people who come and, and knock on you know, the church door and say, hey, I need some money, I'm struggling. Some of them legit just need money. And um, some of them are in horrible financial situations and your heart breaks for them. But there's also a good chunk of people that will drive up, driving something nicer than what I got and what you got. Walk into my office wearing something better than what I'm wearing. With a phone nicer than what you got. And say, can you pay my light bill? Can you get me gas for my Escalade? This isn't hypothetical. This is, this is what I've experienced in ministry. And what I've realized is there's a whole bunch of people in the world who would rather come and, and, and have a false sense of humility in asking for help 
um, just to keep up their prideful lifestyle. And what people do physically and here is is what they're going to ultimately do here. And so if someone's not able to humble themselves with their stuff and with their lifestyle, they're going to have a hard time humbling themselves before the God of the universe. Why would I bow a knee to him if I can't lay down my stuff? (laughs) Too busy carrying it. From one church to the next, trying to get it paid for. But Jesus was humble, and you got to be humble. If you lack in humility, you'll always struggle in your relationship with God. This is why um, most of our seats are filled with ladies and not dudes. Because dudes, everyone's prideful. Dudes just happen to be really prideful. Whether it be inherent or our culture, we all struggle with it. What about gentleness? Gentleness, uh, in some translations, particularly the Greek, um, it, it translates probably a little closer to uh, meekness. Meekness, most of us think of weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control, particularly emotional. So are your emotions under control? And in the Greek, there was a couple different um, uh, scenarios in which this word would be used 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. One would be um, referring to a soft wind. So we know how powerful the wind can be. And this word would be used in talking about a soft wind because we know the wind can be incredibly powerful, but if it's soft, you're like, man, it's, it's restrained. There's power. Like it, 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 We know how powerful it is, but it's a breeze. The other way, maybe the more popular one, is when it comes to colts, horses, who need to be broken. They need to be tamed. They got power, but it needs to be harnessed. It needs to be focused. We call it breaking them. How's your gentleness? It's the opposite of harsh. Would the people around you say that you got a sharp edge? Would your kids say that you got a sharp edge? It's easy to be harsh. It's one of the first things that if you're not spending time with Jesus, you will notice. And the people around you will know whether you have been in the presence of God, right? Because you've probably got a harshness. You get irritated. And it's just one of the first signs. When you, um, when you have an opportunity to unload on someone because they're wrong, you can bark at someone. Do you pull back or do you unload? I think um, for most of us, we can relate. For me, telemarketers <laughs> is the perfect opportunity because usually if you actually answer the call, you're probably home um, away from the public and you see that weird number come across uh, the screen and you think, probably telemarketer. And, and so then if you answer it, they'll say something usually like, um, hi, Mr. Booth, I'm from such and such. And you hear like a bunch of people in the background. And you're like, this ain't. You, you're not calling to check up on my welfare. Like you, you're, you're trying to sell me something. And they'll say, um, hey, is, I just want to let you know that uh, our conversation is going to be recorded. And you're thinking in the back of your mind, like, mm, do you really want to record what I'm about to say to you? Like, you just like this, you, you might think twice on that. Who's going to want to listen to that? And, and then you, in, that, in that moment, you think to yourself, they're going to sell me something. And I could put them in their place. I could be harsh in the way that I respond to them. I could be a jerk. Nobody would know it. And you're like, ooh, this, this is kind of like an outlet. I, 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 I could kind of let some frustrations off. And you get to choose in that moment, what are you going to do? Do you have self-control? On top of mercy, love, and a whole bunch of other things. 
what you do alone will tell you a lot about what's going on in your heart. How about patience? Humility, gentleness, and patience. Um, this is hard. If I said to you, what's the worst thing that could happen to you right now outside of death? You, you could probably answer pretty easily like, um, I don't know, some sort of suffering. And I'd say, yeah, suffering stinks, right? Um, okay, what's the second worst thing other than suffering that could happen to you right now? Um, I don't know, I guess if the suffering was like long, like a long period of suffering. Yes, that's actually what this means. Long suffering. That's another word for patience. Welcome to uh, the the world of patience. Long suffering. What a terrible phrase. <laughs> like we're going to suffer for a long time. But that's what this means. That's why it feels impossible. But to make it feel even more impossible, let me, let me, let me read this to you. This is... Um, this is just from the, the Lonida, um, straight Greek translation. It means a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation. So if you're provoked, you're staying calm emotionally. In the face of provocation or misfortune and without complaint or irritation. Does that sound doable for you? <laughs> sounds hard. Sounds hard. But all throughout Scripture... You see it. How long did Jacob have to wait to marry his first wife? Seven years. He thought he was marrying Rachel. Then he finds out the next day it's Leah. He's got to wait seven more years. And he'd already served the dude, and the dude wants him to serve even more. How about Israel in the desert? 40. How about Israel in slavery? 400. How about Abraham and Sarah having a baby? A long, long time. I mean, you can go down the list. People all throughout Scripture have shown one of the primary indicators of their dependence and trust in God is their ability to be patient with their circumstances. We have incredible, we have such a small capacity for patience, at least some of us in this culture. We want things now because that's what our culture gives us. We want instant gratification. And so when it comes to things of faith, if we don't have clarity, clarity from God, like God wants me to go left or right, I need to know now. And it's like, you got to understand just because our culture is this way, doesn't mean this is how God's going to function. His timing is different than ours. Listen, I'll just say this before we move on. Um, for some of you, you need clarity. You want clarity. Um, I'll, I'll give you um, two bits of hope. Number one, the beauty of patience is that not only will you connect with God, recognizing he's incredibly patient. You ever wonder why the end times haven't just all gone crazy right now? Like he's patient with humanity right now. So you connect with God just like you do in suffering, but you also have time to press into God. If the end goal of your life is not to get to the end as quickly as you can on your own timing, but to press into God every day, then patience really isn't that big of a deal, is it? It's just more opportunity to press in to the Father. Some of you, um, you don't feel, you know and hear that God's plan is good. You don't feel it and you might not see it, but you need to know ultimately everything is moving in the direction of us whether it's in this life or the next, knowing his plan is good. How about love? Bearing with one another in love. 
Then LT says, making allowance for each other's faults. <laughs> this is... Um, this is this is just it's just loving each other, having mercy, having grace. Do you love the church? Do you love the church? That's what the context of all this is, is that we have the Holy Spirit and that we are together following Jesus and that we love each other. Do you love the church? Sometimes it's easy um, for you to start to see your friends as enemies um, when they don't support you, your spouse as enemies. Um the church leaders as enemies? But we're all putting each other's lives to love one another, to be unified. The devil's going to attack it. Number five, unity. Eager to maintain it. This is a Greek verb showing that this is something you've got to actively work on. You don't just jump in to... um, to church life or a marriage or anything and expect that everything's going to be perfectly unified like, and it's going to stay that way. You've got to work for it. Just like marriage, you don't jump in and say, well, it's healthy from the get-go. No, it's got to be built on a foundation. It's got to grow. It's got to mature. It takes effort. There's work, work, work. And when it comes to the church, the devil is constantly, just like your marriage, just like your relationships, he's, de- he's coming around all the time prowling around like a lion, but he's got a chisel and he's going to try to chisel away at the unity of your relationships and at what God is doing. You've got to fight for it. My prayers so often for the church are unify us, unify us, unify us, unify us. Jesus says that the world will know Christians by two things, our love for one another, just talked about it, and our unity. Do you grumble? Do you complain? You are helping the devil to chisel, 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 chisel. If you got issues with someone, you got to talk to them. And recognize the devil wants us to have disunity because the world will look at it and say, there's no way they can be centered on a good news message about some Jesus if they can't even get along. So many good works of the Lord have been destroyed because of disunity. You got to fight against it. And the bond of peace. I'll just mention this about peace. Um, If you see people who want to quarrel and fight, if there's a war going on on the outside, there's usually always a war going on on the inside. Have patience. (laughs) Love one another and recognize if if someone is picking a fight, and I know this in church leadership, if people are complaining and grumbling, a lot of times it's easy for me to be like, just knock it off. Please, in the family of God, go to your room. (laughs) Just stop for a little bit. But but the more I grow and understand, um, I realize you know, there's something going on. There's always, if there's a battle coming out here, there's a, there's a battle going on in here. And so you're patient with people. You grow in understanding that, hey, something is going on. Um, let's talk to them. Let's love them. You got to look behind the curtain a little bit. You say, I can't do all these things. It's easy for you to look at these and say, those are six things that are like a checklist. This is not a to-do list. This is not a checklist. This is not a staircase to climb. This is a house to live in. And so you can't do any of this just like I can't do any of this if we're not spending time with Jesus. And even when we spend time with Jesus, it's not like this is always easy. But it's going to be obvious if you're trying to fake it. Or if it's coming from him. You can't obey any of the commands of God without the presence and the grace of God. 
This is why Jesus says in John, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Last but not least, we just got a few minutes left. So we'll rifle through this verse four through six. He says, so this brings it all together. This ties it all together. You walk with Jesus, you walk with others. And in verse four, he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Last but not least, we walk as one. You walk with Jesus, you walk with others, and we walk as one. This ties everything together because our identity is found in community. Community with God and community with others. This is how God designed it. This is why the world says to themselves, you gotta, you got to find deep down inside, you got to find your true identity. you got to look within you. And God's saying, you ain't going to find it in you. You ain't got your identity. Like You're going to find it in me, and you're going to find it when I wrap you together with all of my people called the church, and it's going to be a beautiful mess but you're going to find out who you are because I created you to be to be together and to be part of something bigger. This is why if you find yourself if you find yourself struggling, you got to check am, am I connected with Jesus? Am I spending time with him? If you find yourself struggling, you need to ask yourself secondly, am I connected to his body? Am I using my spiritual gifts? Am I loving people? Am I obeying the commands of Christ? You just can't mature. You cannot mature. If you say, yeah, I know part of the faith is that I'm part of a family, and then the, 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 but I'm going to ignore the family. I don't know if it's just me becoming a family man and, or what, but it, the more I grow, the more I realize, the older I get, that this is all... The, every, the family unit in your home, the thing you desire your whole life. And this is a microcosm of what the church is. And God's the Father. And he says a whole bunch of things. One, 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 one. These are seven truths that unite us. Let's rock and roll through them. One body, this is the church, right? So there's universal and local church. You, in placing your faith in Jesus, become part of the church universally. And he calls you jump in locally. Don't use one to exclude the other. Some people will say, well, I'm part of the universal church, right? All the Christians everywhere. So I don't need to be part of any one local church. No, the local church is where you use your gifts. We actually get plugged in and talk and love and be with people. On the flip side, don't become so devoted to your local church that you raise the cross point banner, but you forget about the kingdom out there. We're here to bless other believers and to love them and to expand the universal church. When it comes to the body of Christ, it's very cool, especially for young guys like myself who find themselves placing our faith in Jesus when we're in our early 20s, and then we start learning about the traditional church and what's going on and organization, and we start speaking against church We say, because we look at it as an organization. Listen, I wish I could go back and rebuke myself. When you speak against the church, don't care about, I'm not even talking about the organization. There are humans, part of that. Whatever church we're talking about that loves Jesus, if you speak against the church, you're speaking against yourself. Because if you're not part of the church, so to speak, how could you be in Christ? It's his body. And if you push away from the table that is the church and say, you know what, I'm going to go worship in the woods by myself. I don't need these people. You're pushing away from Jesus. 
because your identity is found not just with you and him, it's us and him. This is why it says our father in heaven, not my father in heaven, because you're at the table with a bunch of other children of God. One body, one spirit. This is the Holy Spirit giving it salvation, sealing us, guiding us, teaching us. You, um, like me, have probably walked into churches before and you have, um, you've wondered, what kind of spirit's here? Because <laughs> it's not very good. This is the beauty of the body of Christ being marked by the spirit of Christ. A good body has got to have a good spirit. And God says, I'm going to make you my body, but I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit to unify this thing and to keep this together. So God's spirit should be at the center. You can get bitter if you don't see it. And I'm not talking about making sure we got a Pentecostal worship service and we're all doing things that we perceive as spiritual. No, I'm talking about all, all these all the stuff we're learning here in scripture about what it means to, to follow Jesus and to be great. You, when you recognize the spirit of God is here, it's a wonderful thing. When you recognize that it's not here, don't get bitter and leave. Fan it into flame. Obey Jesus. Teach the Bible. Do everything you're hoping you would find in the church to make sure that the spirit of God is the center of this. We can't do anything apart from the spirit of God. Number three, hope. What's the hope? One hope. We all got one hope in Christ. This is the return of Jesus. So if you find yourself invested in the body of Christ, the people around you, and you find yourself um, loving and fanning into flame the spirit of God, unifying us all, and you have one hope that Jesus is going to return, he hasn't left his children here forever, then it's going to be hard for you to be divisive. You're going to have a different perspective. You're going to say, man, we're the church. We're broken. We're messy. But this is Jesus' church, and his spirit is in here changing us, and he's coming back for us. You're probably not going to find yourself with much time to fight, to grumble, to complain. The church needs a laser focus. Expand God's kingdom in here, out there, and he's coming back so we can go there. That's our hope. Number four, Lord. This is what I love. Sometimes it's easy for um, people in the church to get power hungry and people to fight and to take things personal and say, well, this leader did that or that person did this. Listen, Jesus gives the orders. And my job as a pastor, I, I will at most, at best, biblically be an under shepherd to the great shepherd. It's his church. He makes decisions. If I interpret it wrong, I need to repent and be rebuked and change but he speaks to all of us and he's Lord. One time Gandhi was asked what, um, what was hindering the Christian mission, even though he was obviously not a Christian in India. And he said, Christians, Christians, they're the greatest hindrance. Why? Because he saw there's a whole bunch of people that claim to have one Lord, but they're not really following this one Lord and everything falls apart. Number five, faith. He's not just talking about one faith, the act of faith, but he's talking about doctrine. There are essentials to the Christian faith, truth, doctrine, that we have to abide by, that if you're outside of them, then we're talking about a different faith. He says, there's one faith. He tells Timothy, protect and guard what I have given to you and put it in the hands of faithful men to spread that message. The Trinity, salvation by grace through faith alone. Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus being our Lord, our Savior, the Spirit, the Father. Like there's, 
We could go on and on and on and on. There are essentials to the faith. There's some non-essentials that we can disagree on and still be part of the same family. But there are essentials that say you're either in the house or you're not. Number six, baptism. Probably not referring, um, and this can be complicated, but for the sake of brevity, I I won't go into a long um, explanation. Sometimes when the New Testament talks about baptism, it's referring to water baptism. Um, That's the baptism most of us are familiar with. But other times it's talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't say that we need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit because it's not an act that happens after salvation. It happens at salvation. You place your faith in Jesus and the Spirit of God is placed into you. That's referred to as baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we say... All of us, if you're a Christian, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then water baptism is something that comes afterwards, whether it be two minutes afterwards or 20 years. It's something we do to obey Christ. But this baptism is simply referring to conversion. So there's one entryway into this, is what he's saying. One God and one Father of all. So we're one family, and we've got a dad in heaven. This is good news. He's the one. If you, I don't know what your dad was like growing up, um, but some of us, we have dads that, that when we were in the house with them, everyone would act right when dad was home because we knew, well, dad is dad. When dad's away, we do what we want. But when dad's home, we obey dad. We're unified because there's a father over all this. And he's saying, kids, come here. Come here. I'm in the house. So let me sum it up for you. He's saying in this three verses, Christianity is one family sealed with one spirit, with one focus on one leader, that's Jesus, with one guidebook, that's the Bible and doctrine, and one way to enter in, that's Jesus, to be with one Father and one God working all together for his glory. He's over all, he's through all, and he's in all. And you say, what does this ultimately mean for me, right? What does this mean? It means that A walk with Jesus, spending time with Jesus, and being part of a local church where we love each other, we serve each other, we recognize we're broken, but we are being restored and healed and redeemed by Jesus. It is bigger, better, and more beautiful than we probably ever imagined. I hope that if you leave with anything tonight, you leave with that. That that one hour ago, I thought that Jesus was this way and the church is important and it's all good. But now I'm leaving here with, with even more understanding that this is all bigger, better and more beautiful than I thought. Let me give you just a little confession here as we wrap this up tonight. Um, when, when Tara uh, got pregnant four years ago, we had prayed for five years um, for a baby and we had fertility issues. It just wouldn't happen. And she got pregnant. We had a lot of time to analyze what it'd be like to be mom and dads, um, not only for five years, but the nine months that Silas was in there um, baking. And he... Um, it didn't scare me too much when he was in Tara's belly. I was able to analyze fatherhood a little bit and say, okay, I know I'm not ready for it, but I think I'm kind of ready for it and we'll figure it out. And then the day came where he was born and we went into the hospital and we're in the middle of the desert. And so there's like nobody in the hospital, right? It's a couple days before Thanksgiving and it's a tiny hospital to begin with, but there's nobody but like our nurse. And whenever the baby's going to come, the doctor will come. So it's like, a, it's like giving birth in a ghost town, <laughs> It was weird. At first, I was kind of nervous. And she was induced, and the morning hours pass, afternoon hours. I think she took a little nap. I took a little nap. You kind of let your guard down a little bit. Then around 5 o'clock, it started to kind of heat up a little bit. 
that started to feel kind of tense. I was like, oh man. Now I've talked to you guys about my anxiety. My anxiety is about irrational things, not rational things. So something like this, I should be scared. I'm generally, I don't get scared with tests and stuff like that. Like I get scared at stupid things. But this was starting to get kind of scary. And I went to the bathroom um, a few minutes before and I just was kind of just praying and whew, just taking some deep breaths. I'm thinking, man, I'm not even the one giving birth. Come on, I can do this. And I, and <clears throat> I go back out there and, you know, um, Tara's ready to go and I'm supposed to kind of be helping. And it, I don't know how to describe it other than childbirth is a beautiful, disgusting process all in one I, sh- I mentally should have been prepared for it because I even go through EMT training. You had to do emergency birth stuff. And, you know, like I knew of the grossness. But no, and I was like right in front of you there. And I was like, man, long story short, this baby's coming quick. A couple huffs and puffs and this baby's going to come. I run out of the room. I didn't like pass out. I ran down the little ghost hall into one of the other rooms it was just dark. No one's in any of these rooms, right? And, and I just whew, kind of having a panic attack and I'm freaking out a little bit. And um, very clearly the spirit of God in me says, Ryan, you need to get it together and go back in there. That's your family and that's your flesh and blood. And I was overwhelmed um, by the situation, but I was more overwhelmed by the voice of God telling me what was right in the moment. And so I went back there and I saw the birth of my son, which I'm glad I didn't miss. And life since then has been just like the birth, beautiful and messy all at the same time. And when you leave here tonight and you think about some of you needing to get plugged in a little more. I'm not talking about plugged in like a pastor says, well, you need to do this, you need to do that. I'm talking about investing in the people around you digging into their life, inviting them into your life, pressing into Jesus. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until next week. Go home tonight. Walk out of here. Take a deep breath. Say, okay, Spirit, you're in me. I want to hear from you. I want to walk with you. Guide me. I want to go home. I'm going to eat. I'm going to whatever I'm going to do before bed and, and, and talk to God. Take time and listen to God. Press in. The church is messy. A relationship with God is messy, but it is beautiful. And God's saying, you were born again. And it has been a messy situation going from a, a life of sin to walking in holiness and righteousness. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross in a big old heap of mess so that he could clean us up. And it's worth it. There's no greater priority than to press into Jesus and press into one another because we get to reflect Jesus to each other. I'll say this as we pray. For the rest of your life, you're going to hear the worldly definition of a calling, which will probably revolve somewhere around um, an accumulation of your greatest hopes and dreams and goals. The Bible says your calling is Christ. It's Jesus. It's being with him, being transformed by him, reflecting his holiness and doing that with other people. Whatever step you need to take in that, 
press in. We'll walk. Let's pray.